listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I want us to pray together and then we're going to open God's word and see what he has for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, speak because your servants are listening. We ask, God, that whatever is going on in all of our lives, all the different stories represented, that you would calm by your spirit and you would make us available, ready to hear from you. You're worth that. So we ask all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love that we got to do communion to start off because I think it's a perfect lead-in and a perfect introduction and an illustration for the text that we're going to, to discover here in just a moment. I'm pretty sure that King David, the shepherd boy, wrote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me besides green pastures and by still waters. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think that's a perfect psalm for communion. He prepares a table for us. We get to gather around the greatest common denominator, that is the finished work of Jesus. And yet, we had a sort of a really shocking time of openness and vulnerability and confession. We could all admit that all of us truck stuff in to the table this morning that we probably really would not want put up on the screen we wouldn't want shared. We certainly wouldn't want our spouses or our kids to know. We assume our neighbors know, maybe our coworkers. There's a whole lot of stuff that we sort of drag around that we really wouldn't be comfortable if the risen Lord Jesus himself was right next to us. And yet that is precisely what we do. We drag it to the table, considering that it is finished. And so this morning, we're going to get to spend a little time hearing the story of a king, a king who is faithful to someone who didn't deserve it and who didn't even know that such a thing was possible. And so I'll tell you in advance, here's our big idea. Here's our walkout wisdom word for the morning, the thing I want us to all get. And it might not seem that profound at first hearing, but I tell you it is. Here's our big idea for the day. It goes like this. Grace is God doing what he can. Grace is God doing what he can. Now, that might make your mind wander a little bit, as it should. What can do? What can God do? A lot. And he has. So this spring semester, we have been at Bethel and all three campuses in a series of sermons about the life of David, this shepherd, poet, warrior, and king, being prepared for the ultimate king that would one day come. All of these stories in the Old Testament, specifically David, but all of the rest of them as well, are pointing us forward to one day what God will do in Christ. If you read the stories of the Old Testament merely as morals or fables, they have no power. That's not how they were intended. All of those stories in the Old Testament are preparing us for what God will one day do in Messiah with the Christ. And the way we know that is because Jesus himself says so. You might remember after his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he encounters two very discouraged, grieved disciples. He says, what's, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so down on the mouth? And they said, would you be the only one who hasn't heard? 
Jesus, who we thought was Messiah, man, he's, he's dead. And Jesus says, oh, then you've misunderstood. You were not reading the Old Testament with the Christ in mind. You were reading yourself into those stories, and that cannot work. He says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. How is God going to make all of the promises, all of the prophets, all of the priests, all of his presence, how is he going to bring it with the Messiah? And Jesus is the answer. And so to really make a big deal about that, we've been studying the life of David. And we've seen him through all of his early years. We've studied so far his anointing by Samuel, when all the other uh, brothers were paraded by, and it wasn't them. How Saul is the king in Israel, but he's, uh, eh, he's tall, dark, and not so bright, actually. And he's not a very good king. And we follow David as he slays Goliath. And we follow David as he's on the run from King Saul, who tries to spear him over and over again. Now, see, that's a bad king. You may not like this administration or that administration, but neither of them have thrown a spear at my belly, at least not yet. That happens to David over and over and over again, and he flees King Saul. Finally, Samuel the prophet has died. King Saul has died. Saul's son, Jonathan, has died. David has won more victories, and he finally gets some rest, sitting in a palace in Jerusalem with his prophet Nathan, and he says, you know what, man, God has been so good to me. God has been so great. I'm going to build him a house. God says, that's really, really silly. It's kind of sweet, but silly. You you don't understand, David. I'm not the God that you pay back. I am the God who gives lavishly, graciously, because that's the kind of God that I am. You're not going to build me a house. I have need of nothing. I will build you a dynasty because that's how good I am. We said last week, there's no payback for grace. Now then, that finally brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're moving forward a good bit now. Now, many of you know um, that I had the privilege and the opportunity many years ago to go to seminary, and I spent many years there, lots of calories, Lots of resources and funds to get through seminary. And here's what I learned. 2 Samuel 9 comes right after 2 Samuel 8. It's true, but hold on. Then I spent more time at seminary, and then I was able to finally put the pieces together and realize that 2 Samuel 9 comes immediately before 2 Samuel 10. It's true. Eureka, I know, listen, you're feeling right now like, please, somebody pass the plate. I want to respond. No, no, hold on, there's more. There's more. 2 Samuel 9 comes after 8 and before 10. Why does that matter? Because 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 9 are very, very similar. In 2 Samuel 8, we have the military might, the strategy, the conquest of good King David as he settles the area. He conquers the lands to the north. He goes east, he goes south, he goes west. He subdues the land, and he shores up the borders. Yes, it's happening. This is what the king of Israel is supposed to do, what we always hoped for. It's beginning. And then in chapter 10, we see that David is finally going to go up against the nastiest, knuckle-dragging enemies of Israel at this time, the Ammonites. The Ammonites. These are the Philadelphia Eagles of the ancient world, okay? As bad as it gets. 
These guys were the product of the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, which is just a bad way to start a nation, okay? That's just a terrible way. And yet the nation of Ammon grew and grew, and they were always a thorn in the side of Israel until finally in 2 Samuel 10, David essentially whips them back and lays them low. But in chapter 9, we've got this really strange little narrative that has nothing to do with military might nor uh, conquest nor strategy. It's telling us something about the heart of the king himself, telling us something very important about what David is like. We've heard over and over again that David is a man after God's own heart. Well, 2 Samuel 9 is the illustration. It is the demonstration. It is the projection of how David is like a man after God's own heart. What we're going to find out about David is true infinitely more so with God is that David is not merely righteous and just, although that's good. A righteous person does what he ought. A righteous person, a just person, does what he should, does what he must. But a good person does whatever he can. A good person does whatever she can. It's not limited to what they should do, ought to do, must do. No, a good person, Paul says in Romans, does whatever he or she can. And we're going to begin to learn that about David. And the word that's going to show up over and over again through 2 Samuel 9 is this word chesed. Chesed. When you speak Hebrew, sometimes you just got to clear your throat a little bit. Chesed. It's an untranslatable word, but I happen to believe it might be the most important word of the Old Testament, short of the covenant-keeping name of God himself, Yahweh. But right behind that, chesed is uh, it's loving kindness. It's moving mercy. It's going grace. It's the covenant-keeping mercy that God gives to those who do not deserve it, who would not even know to go looking for it if they did. Loving kindness, covenant-keeping loyalty. This is what David is going to demonstrate. What we're going to find is, oh, what if there was a greater king, a God, who had the exact same characteristic but sinlessly see also the coming of Christ? We learn about chesed from this text. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And in verse 1, we're just going to walk through this text and see what are some implications from it. Very beginning. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Now stop. If you are alive in antiquity, that means I'm about to go on a killing spree. Pack a lunch, stay for the day, I'm going to go killing folks. Because that's what happens in antiquity. If you are a new king that has ascended the throne... You find the house of your predecessor, and you kill everybody because you don't want those people coming back and launching an insurrection against you later on. That's just what you do. We know that happened in Egypt. It happened in Persia. It happened in Assyria. It happened in Babylon. It happened with the Medes. It happens everywhere. And so David says, hey, cray-cray King Saul, his people, are there anybody that's still left from that guy? And you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to get bloody in here, that I may show him Chesed, kindness, loyalty, loving kindness for Jonathan's sake. I want to show kindness to anybody that remains for this guy, Jonathan. You see, you remember, Jonathan was David's best friend. We learned from Jonathan what it looks like to abdicate the throne of one's life, to say, you are the rightful king, not me. I surrender, I submit, and I yield. And David and Jonathan make a covenant. They will look out for one another's lines, their their seed. 
And that's some 15 to 20 years ago by this point. And David says, I have not forgotten that. Because of my love for Jonathan, I will remember those who were his. And so what we're going to see here, for Jonathan's sake, we're going to see, the Bible uses these big technical words, two imputations. We're going to meet a character who is sort of down on his luck. And this character is going to be the recipient of two imputations, two credits into his account. For starters, he is in Saul. He is a grandson of Saul, which means he's the enemy. He's wicked. He's from the line of people that is supposed to die. He didn't ask to be born in the line of Saul. He just is. This is what Romans 5 talks about. This is, it's like we were in the garden. When Adam fell, we fell. It's like we were there. We didn't ask to eat the fruit, but we were there. We come into existence having that imputation on us. But what we're going to learn is there's another imputation. This down-on-his-luck fella is also the recipient of the love that David has for Jonathan. Because of the love of his father, he's going to receive another just like what Paul talks about in Romans 5, there is an imputation where the second imputation of righteousness is better than the first imputation of sin. So, got there in verse 1, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? <laughs> this is some clever fast-on-your-feet footwork right here. He's a servant of cray-cray King Saul, you might remember, who tried to jab David in the belly with a spear at least six times. And there's a servant of Saul, his name is Ziba, and he says, are you Ziba? The dude says, I am your servant. <laughs> Good answer, Big Z. Way to go. I am your servant. Like, well, this old jersey? No. And he rips off Team Saul, and he puts on Team David. It's right. Good moving. Verse 3, and the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but uh, <clears throat> you, you, uh, you, you don't want him. He's, uh, he's, he's crippled. He's no good. He has no redeeming value. He can't work. He can't serve. He can't earn. He can't contribute anything. Why does Ziba say this? Because he was the closest one. If, if this down-on-his-luck fellow is not in the picture, Ziba's thinking he's going to get the goodies. There is one, but, you know, he's crippled. We find out in 2 Samuel 4.4 that at one point, this fellow has a maid who's trying to take care of him, and they're being attacked. And so the maid scoops him up and runs off with him. He's a five-year-old boy, which I'm thinking, why is a five-year-old boy not running? But anyway, it doesn't matter. He's not running. The maid's carrying him. Something happens. She drops him, breaks his legs, and he's crippled from that day forward. No fault of his own, but he is now crippled and, and has some sort of pronounced limp the rest of his life. Zeba says, well, there is one, but he is crippled in his feet. And then David said, verse 4, Then the king said to him, Ooh, that's too bad. Is, is, there, is there discoloration? Because that creeps me out. I don't want any part of that. Is that what he, no, no, hold on. He goes, verse 4, Oh, okay, so is there some oozing? Because that's gross. I want no part of that. Is he? No. David ignores the comment. Ziba says, yeah, there's one, but he's crippled. And David simply says, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, well, uh, yeah. Well, he's, uh, hmm. 
He's, uh, he's at the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. That's funny. It's about as far away into the Badlands as you can go. Here's David. He's in Jerusalem at his new palace. He's just been told by God, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Where is the last remaining seed of Saul? And Ziba says, oh, he's, a, he's, at, uh, he's at Lodabar. Lodabar means not a pasture. In other words, it's like the surface of the moon if God was angry with the moon, okay? There's nothing up there. It's sort of like he's in Jerusalem. That would be like David is in the capital of Washington, D.C., and Lodabar would be mm, northeast Maine. Like it's way up in the hinterlands, nobody up there. It's across the Jordan River on the way to Damascus. There's nothing there. And David says, go get him. I don't, I don't hear about any other excuses. You go and get him. You go and get him. So, Ziba said to the king, there is still a son, verse 3. The king said to him, where is he? And he says, it's up in Lodabar. Then, verse 5, King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Goes and gets him. Now, can you just imagine how this goes? Because I can, and you're going to get to hear how I imagine this goes. There he is. His name is Mephibosheth, which name means cleaver to shame. This is a bad name to name your kids, okay? Mephibosheth, he who cleaves to shame. Chronicles says he has another name. His name is Medir Baal. Baal, the pagan god, is my advocate. That's a bad name, okay? Apparently his name is changed from whatever, Steve, to Mephibosheth and or Medir Baal. When he is crippled, he's not Mr. Popular. He's not winning any, any popularity contests, okay? So there he is hiding out on the backside of the planet, as far as he's concerned, afraid alone, and he knows that his father and his grandfather are dead. And all of a sudden, hey, Mephibosheth, you in there? No. Yeah, no, no, I heard that. I, I, I think you're in there. Uh, I need to talk to you. Who is it? Yeah, I knew you were in there. It's Zeba. Zeba who? It's Zeba, the servant of Saul. Well, listen, uh, Mephibosheth, I, I got some news. Um, the new king wants to see you. Uh, what does he want? None of my business, Mephibosheth, but we're taking a trip. You're coming with me. Uh, I'm kind of busy. No, no, no. It's not an option. It was not an invitation. It was a summons. The king wants to see you. Come on, pack up. Let's go. Uh, find somebody else. No, no, no. It's you, Mephibosheth. Let's go. And so they take a little trip way, way up in the north. Mephibosheth was neither seeking for the king nor knew how to get to the king and candidly had only every reason to fear the king. And yet the king sought him out. It's a great, great picture, actually. The king sends him out. So he's brought, and in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and said, well, what took you so long? It was hot up there. No, he, he doesn't say That's what I would say. That's not what he says. He fell on his face and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. My Bible has an exclamation point as well it should. The king calls him by name. Because the king never forgets a name. He represents God to the people. Mephibosheth. 
Can you imagine the sound of your name being called by the king? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. That's the right answer. I yield, I submit, I surrender. I have nothing. And by the way, I've got these two gnarly nubs at the end of my shins. I pose no threat to you. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear. By the way, he had every reason to fear. He knew, he knew how Saul would have treated David's kids. He knew. But he says to him in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I will show you kindness, chesed, loyalty. I will show you mercy for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Can you, can you see this? Some of you have had an experience like this. You've, you've come across someone, a younger person perhaps, and perhaps you had some really, really good friends, and both of them had passed away, but then you had the opportunity to meet their offspring. And you look in, the, in their face, and you just make that face. You go, because you can see their parents' face in theirs, and it just moves you. It stirs you. I see them in you. And I just want you to know, I'm probably going to go full Kardashian here in a moment. We're going to have some baptisms, and we're going to see several children. And I see those children, and I see their parents in their face. My heart swells because I love the parents. I love the parents. And I get to see these little people. And I have that same sense that David looks at Mephibosheth and he sees the face of Jonathan and 15 years melts away. And he says, oh, because of my love for him, in whom you are, whose you are, because of my great, great affection and loyalty to him, I'm going to do vastly more than you could possibly imagine or expect. Tells him what he's going to do for him, and it's a shocking scandal of grace. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I'm going to restore fortunes that you didn't even know you had. I'm going to restore way more than anybody else would, not for Saul's sake, for Jonathan's sake, because I love him for his sake. And he paid homage and said, this is Mephibosheth, what is your servant that I should show regard for a dead dog such as I? By the way, the Hebrew expression there, dead dog, it means dead dog. This is what we call a low anthropology where Mephibosheth has a right understanding of who he is in relation to the king. He's not walking around going, oh man, Dave, listen, you, good call. You're so lucky to choose me with the first pick of the draft. Listen, I, I know I'm kind of nubby down here, but listen, I'm pretty, uh, no, no, I'm a dead dog. And our low anthropology leads to our high theology, who God is and what God has done. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant. <laughs> That's funny, you see. David's not, he's not fooled. He may have been born at night, it wasn't last night. He knew who Ziba was. He called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Whoa, I'm not good at math, but that's like 38 people or something. 
That's like a ready-made agricultural forest. Here you are walking on your little nubs up on the backside of the moon, and all of a sudden, you've got all of Saul's lands. What was Saul? Saul was a Benjamite. All of the Benjamite land was some of the finest lands in the low Judean Shephela. It's all going to be yours. And these guys, these 35 dudes, they're going to till it for you. I want you here with me. I'm calling you, Mephibosheth, my son. I'm going to bestow upon you all the rights of adoption. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commanded his servant, so will your servant do. Good answer. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That moves me. You know why he gets to sit at the table? Because he's a son. He's not a servant. You remember the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son? Oh, father, just make me like one of your servants. Shush up you. Kill the calf. Put on the ring. Put on the robe. You are my son. Couldn't get closer. How did David's other sons do? Well, let's see. There was a guy named Absalom. Absalom had incredible hair, and he led an insurrection against his father David, kicked his father David out of the palace, makes David flee to this place up in the northeast. It's called uh, Lodabar. It's exactly where David has to flee, the same place he brought Mephibosheth from. Absalom, with his great hair, gets stuck in a tree, and General Joab comes up and jams a javelin through his belly. He's dead. Didn't finish well. Well, then you got Amnon. Surely Amnon will be a better son. Mm, Amnon raped his half-sister. That's a bad day at Thanksgiving. And then he's killed for his crime. Not so good. Well, what about Ahijah? Ahijah, he also tries to launch a military coup. He's put to death. Well, what about Solomon, the wisest man ever, who ends up with a thousand wives? Bad idea who turns away from the one true God of Israel and seeks after foreign and pagan gods and ends a broken man. You know who finishes better than any other son David has? <laughs> it's Nubby. It's Mephibosheth, which is why I like to call him Mephibosheth. It's me, the last, the least, the lost, brought near, called a son, invited to the table to have proximity and peace and presence and maybe even pie with the king for all eternity. That's good. He is the only one that as David is in exile in Lodabar, Mephibosheth is the one who waits at his own peril in Jerusalem. The whole time his, fa his father David is on the run. Mephibosheth says, I will not bathe. I will not cut my hair. I will not tend to my feet. Now, some of you have teenagers that are doing that right now. It's not out of loyalty. It's out of laziness and bad hygiene. That's not, don't, don't let them claim, I'm being Mephibosheth-othian. No, 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 no. They need to take a bath. But Mephibosheth says, I will identify with this guy so much. I will not bathe. I will not cut my hair. I will not tend my feet. Because I want everybody to know I am associated. I am identified with the one that gave me grace. And astonishingly, the narrative continues, verse 12. And Mephibosheth had a young son. Are you kidding me? He who was cut off has a son. What does he name his son? Micah, who is like God. It's a good name. Who is like God. There it is. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. I love how this chapter ends. Now, 
who's lame in both feet. Why does the chapter end that way? By the way, just in case you forgot, he was lame in both feet. But where was he before? He's at the king's table. You know when you're scooted up to the table, you know what you can't see? The feet. When the king brings you to table, he's not looking at your feet. It doesn't matter. See, God is not merely righteous and just, although he is. He doesn't just do what he should or ought. Oh, praise God, he does what he can. So much so that he sends his own son, and he loves his own son. And so much so that when he sees his son and he sees me, he sees me through his own son. Just like David saw Mephibosheth through Jonathan, Yahweh sees me through Jesus. God's grace is God doing what he can. So three very quick implications to help us think on this. Number one, grace is risky to the giver. You know, God is willing to risk. Grace is risky to the giver. David risks upsetting all of his other sons and all of his other wives are creating some sort of tensions that nobody had any interest in. But the covenant promise that David made decades earlier and his love for the one with whom he had made that covenant drove him to risk everything. And we learn something about God that way. God's love is risky. He's willing to send his own son into what I think may be the absolute worst possible context. Let's see. Let me drop in a defenseless, helpless baby into the jaws of the Roman Empire. What could possibly go right? And yet, is there anything as disarming and welcoming and inviting as a baby? This is how risky God is because it is risky to the giver. He's willing to take that risk because he loves us and because he loves his own son. Secondly, this is good news for many of us, me first, grace is not picky. Grace is not picky. I love the fact that David doesn't do a personality review. Let's see, is he uh, high I, high D, that Mephibosheth? No, doesn't review him. Doesn't do a scan of his assets and resources. Does not review his PSAT, you know, his Palestinian SAT. He doesn't review that either. He just says, where is he? Bring him to me. He's not looking for me. He wouldn't know where to find me. And if he found me on his own terms, he wouldn't like it. I'm going to seek him out. Grace is not picky. It affects me because it's the same way that God looks at me because he can literally see in me Christ, the hope of glory. David saw Jonathan in the face of Mephibosheth. Do you know that God the Father sees Jesus in mine? Oh, praise God. And then the third one, I admit it. Look, this was more just for me. I liked it. It was fun. But it's deep theological truth. You know what grace does? Grace turns Mephibosheths into Melchizedeks. See, this is fun. Grace turns Mephibosheths into Melchizedeks. This nubby nobody, this discarded cripple who was an enemy, who was far from the king, is brought near. You know what the gospel says? Not only have we been brought near, not only have we experienced adoption, being called sons and daughters. The book of Hebrews says, we are not even from the line of Aaron nor of Judah. We're not priests. We're not kings like Aaron and the kings of Judah were. No, 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 no. Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest king. And Hebrews says that we are co-mediators of the same new covenant. I've been gone from nubby little Mephibosheth to the highest honor. I am found as a Melchizedekian priest king, inviting people to say, this is who God is. This is what he has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. The book of Hebrews says, this Jesus, our king, he is a king that is good, not just just. He's a champion who is willing to die. 
And he is a big brother who is proud. If you're here this morning, I just want to remind you that grace is God doing what he can. and He could do no more. He literally could do no more. So I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he would do, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, which is perfection, and he offers us that finished scorecard of a life lived sinlessly. But not only that, he paid the wages of sin, which is his death. For some of you, you're still hoping that it all works out at the end. I just want you to know, as far as the world is concerned, you might as well be Mephibosheth, hanging out up in Lodabar. That's as much chance as you have. We believe that the king has gone searching. What's the answer? For the rest of you, you've been a believer for a very long time, but you have forgotten the glory and the grandeur of grace, and you're trying to merely get by. Remember, you have a seat at his table for always. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.